0: Today's episode is a bit of a special one in that we are going to interview not one, but two guests today. They are the co-authors of Build a Career in Data Science, a book from Manning Publications, who just so happens to also be the publisher of my book, Taming Text. Because this is a special episode with two guests, and because they are authors of a book, we are going to do a giveaway, just like we did for Chris and Jay a few episodes back for their book, Core Kubernetes. Here's how it's going to work. The first five people, that's right, five people who email the show at datasciencedevelopmentor.com, at that's D A T A S C I E N C E, at developmentor.com, will receive a code good for one free ebook copy of Build a Career in Data Science. For those of you who don't want to send an email, you can get a 40% discount on all Manning books, including Build a Career in Data Science, by using the discount code PODDEVMEN20. That's poddevmen D E V We'll be sure to link that all up in the show notes. Okay, on to our guests. Our first guest, Emily Robinson, was a decision science and statistics major at Rice University, who then went on to get a master's in organizational behavior from INSEAD. She then launched her career working as a professional data scientist for the likes of Etsy, Datacamp, and now Warby Parker. Our second guest, Jacqueline Nolas has a background in applied mathematics, getting both her bachelor's and master's from Worcester Polytechnic Institute and her doctorate from Arizona State in industrial engineering. From that foundation, she has built out a career as a business analyst, data scientist, and director of analytics for the likes of Boeing, Linati, Vistaprint, and now she's on her own as a principal data scientist for her consulting company, NOLIS LLC. Stay tuned as we hear both of their stories, as well as learn their tips to building a successful career in data science.
1: You're listening to the Developmentor Podcast, hosted by Grant Ingersoll. We have one goal on the show, to help you build a successful career in tech, no matter where you're from or where you're going. We do this by showcasing interesting people working across a variety of roles in tech and deep dive into their why. If you want to learn more, please visit our website at developmentor.com or follow us on Twitter at developmentor.
0: Welcome to the show, Emily and Jacqueline. Great to have you here.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
0: And I trust you both are doing well. I know it's a little bit of crazy times. It's kind of surreal to be hosting a podcast while all of this uh, craziness that is COVID-19 is happening around us. But uh, I trust at least you and your family are doing okay.
2: Yeah, so far.
0: Yeah, that's good. That's good to hear, and you know, And why don't we then get started, and, and maybe Jacqueline, first question to you, and then we'll follow up with you quickly, Emily, and, and have each of you kind of take a moment and give a quick intro to yourself and, and your career, kind of hit the highlights, if you will. So Jacqueline, let's start with you.
3: I got my undergrad and master's in mathematics years ago. And I'm like, at that time, I'm like, I want to use my mathematical skills to help businesses. And this is before the term data science existed. It was tough to search for a job because it's not like you just Google search or do like a monster.com search for data scientists. So eventually I found some jobs in analytics departments doing what is now called data science. But eventually after a couple of years, my, my background is so theoretical, I wanted to learn some more like real, like practical skills, which are now called like machine learning. Uh, and so I ended up getting a, uh, a PhD in industrial engineering with a focus in operations research, which is all more machine learning kind of stuff. At that point, I realized I really like consulting. Um, I really like helping companies solve their problems, their data science problems, and then moving on to the next company. And so I've been doing consulting in some various form for the last like eight years or so, whether it's part of a small data science team, whether it's not being like the lead and like building a data science team from scratch, or now I'm uh, working as an independent consultant. So, uh, you know, I'm like a freelancer, I'm a mercenary data scientist.
0: The mercenary data scientist, I love it. I want to come back to that, especially that notion of being on your own, because that is definitely an interesting career choice. But but first, you know, Emily, how about you and, and your background?
2: Yeah, so I come from a little bit of a different background. So I went up through the social sciences. Uh, I was actually in a PhD program at NCAD, but about two years in, like when I was going to get my master's, I decided that, well, I'm not really sure academia is for me. And that's kind of the, the very much the path that you're put on with a PhD, even though lots of people with PhDs go on to industry as Jacqueline did, of course, um, while you're in the PhD program, at least mine was all oriented to going towards an academic career. Uh, so I decided I was like, okay, I don't want to do that. But I was familiar with data science, right? I, I took a lot of stats classes in my undergraduate. And I decided to do a data science bootcamp called Metis, um, because I wanted to get some Python skills and some machine learning skills to complement the experience I had in R, which I did in undergrad, and my statistics background. Yeah, and then from there, I got a job at um, Etsy, which was really great. Went on to DataCamp, now Warby Parker. And I think actually the social sciences background has served me really well because you get a lot of the technical skills you need from doing quantitative social science and also the research process, the idea of finding uh, questions to investigate, gathering the data, cleaning it, um, analyzing it and presenting it is all the same as the data science uh, process.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. And I, I love how you tied those two together because, you know, I think for many of us, social science is often this one thing over here that's, you know, kind of studying how people behave, of course. And it's, it's often not put in the same realm as data science. You know, I think one is perhaps seen as, Uh, a hard science the other is a soft science and there's some projection going on there that I don't think is accurate or totally fair because they both are doing a lot of quantitative analysis I'm curious there Emily you you know let's start with you and and continue on and what actually inspired you to get into this field when you know is it 18 year old Emily was like hey I happen to be good at this math thing or I like social science how did you decide to go into this in the first place
2: I mean, I started my career a little bit later than Jacqueline, but still when I was getting in college, like data science isn't really where where it is right now, but I'd already been like, you know, pretty decent at math. Um, I also will say I benefited from uh, having my brother, Dave Robinson, who's also a data scientist now. Uh, he was in grad school in computational and quantitative biology when I was in college, and he encouraged me to take some statistics classes. Um, and I'm really glad I did because I do think statistics is Really useful in a wide variety of careers, um, statistics and kind of the the programming for data analysis you can do, hopefully if you have a good statistics program, which I did. Um but yeah, I didn't necessarily think like, oh, I'm definitely going to do data science. And I guess what led me to there is because once I was you know leaving with my masters, data science was sort of more of a thing, and I'm like, well, I have what sounds like these skills, and it seems like a really good fit for. You know, kind of things I'm interested in doing, like finding like answers to questions, helping people, um, you know, kind of using these programming and the statistical skills that I've gained to help make an impact at companies, which was also why I decided to go into industry because I really, I really wanted to take that knowledge and use it uh, versus in academia. Sometimes I had professors who would, you know, we're still doing the final revisions for a paper that they submitted five years ago. Uh, so it could take a long time to see impact. And then even when it's published, you know, it may or may not, uh, reach that many people.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. And Jacqueline, you know, you've kind of seen that through your PhD program, that that side of it as well. But I'm curious, you know, same question for you was what inspired you to get into this field?
3: Oh, it's funny. So yeah, so as you were saying, a lot of the themes that Emily was talking about, about research being slow and not having that much of an impact, that influenced my story too. But for me, it actually really started uh, when I first applied to the undergraduate program at Worcester Polytechnic Institute. And at the time, I was a freshman, and I thought like computer chips and like circuit boards and soldering, I thought that stuff was all cool. So I was came coming in as electrical engineer, and I took one semester of like electromagnetic physics. And I'm like, I hate this. I hate this so much. they I'm like, well, what do I like? And I'm like, well, I really like math classes, and I like math my whole life. So I'll major in math. And I remember you know, in an undergrad, and this isn't like 2000s, people are like, okay, you're getting a degree in math, but what can you actually use a math degree for? And I remember this kind of like judgment feeling people would have a little, you know, like, just like, that seems like less practical than a lot of the other engineering degrees you could get at an engineering school. I remember having this kind of shame. And look at me now. So it really just happened to be a case of being in the right place at the right time. And it's the same thing as Emily, where, you know, i was learning all these math skills. I'm like, I don't want to just prove theorems. I don't want to just write research papers. I actually want to do something that influences some part of the world. And so there's a very natural place for, I want to use mathematics in business. And then it was just a matter of falling into the field that we now call data science. But at the time, you know, it was analytics or, you know, had all these different kind of nebulous names.
0: I love it. And I have a math degree as well. And I think I was even before you and I've got all those same shameful questions. of like, what? You know, thankfully, I found computer science about the same time. I'm curious for both of you, and Emily, I'll start with you first on this. Uh, you both have at least titles in your degree that I'm not particularly familiar with. I think I get some of their underpinnings, but you know, I, I think Emily, yours says something like Master's of Science focused on management with a specialization in organizational behavior, and Jacqueline, yours is industrial engineering, which I think you hinted at around operations research. But I would love it if each of you just tease that apart a little bit more for our, our listeners who might want to understand how that relates to this field of data science. So Emily, for you first, you know, what is a specialization in organizational behavior?
2: So that's really like a technical artifact. At INSEAD, you enter as a PhD student into one of, I think it's like seven departments. So I was in the Department of Organizational Behavior. So I really got a master's in organizational behavior, but technically it's a master's in management, um, which is what it's called. But I feel like, well, that doesn't really like exactly capture what I did, which is why I add the organizational behavior. Uh, But what organizational behavior is, is it's essentially psychology and sociology applied to work. So the people, uh, so professors of organizational behavior, they study things like what makes teams work well? How do you avoid the pitfalls of virtual teams? They study uh, what's the effect of when you add women onto corporate boards or quota systems, or they study what's called like micro organizational topics, which are like interpersonal things. One was actually actually a qualitative researcher. She studied uh, dual career couples, uh, one of my professors, and uh, do it through a lot of research that she did to kind of understand uh, the challenges they face and like uh, common patterns and whatnot. That's my background. It was also very helpful in writing the book because other topics covered include negotiations, uh, which we have a whole chapter on. It was very interesting because there's a lot of research on what makes you find like a fulfilling career or you know, defining your career path. Uh, So I think actually it's been very relevant both for the quantitative skills I got, but also the specific research topics that I got to study.
0: I love it. And boy, we probably could just have the whole episode on how do virtual teams work, especially in this day and age. Jacqueline, you know, industrial engineering. Well, you know, at least when I hear that, I think, you know, factories and manufacturing. And so take a moment to explain, like, how does that set up for you?
3: So I'll talk a little bit more to my life. And I love talking. I never get to talk about this. This is great. Um, so I did my undergrad and pre- master's in math. And originally, I wanted to be a math professor. And quickly, into like halfway through the my undergrad, or maybe right at the beginning of my master's, I'm like, oh my god, I hate research. Like, I hate math research. It's spending months staring at a piece of paper trying to solve a new theorem. And like, maybe you can't make it progress. If you have a math degree, you probably understand that as well. So anyways, I hated it. So I worked for a few years in industry and I kind of got burnt out in industry after a few years because I'm like, I want to do more technical problems. And I was doing a lot of like Excel spreadsheet manipulation and things that were not particularly technical. And so I'm like, I want to go get a PhD, but I don't want to do math research. I really want to get a PhD in using math to solve business problems. And so there's a whole branch of math that does that called operations research, which is all about like, how do you optimally like route cars in a network? And so my PhD was in operations research and it just so happened that operations research fell in the industrial engineering department at Arizona State instead of the math department, although different schools do that differently. That being said, the operations field, like during my degree, I learned a lot of stuff that's really practical as a data scientist, like learning about different forms of machine learning, learning random forests, all that stuff came up in my operations research degree. People have this feeling that like, uh, especially more, you know, younger people tend to have this feeling of like, oh, to get into data science, you have to have these exact degree requirements. You have to have a data science degree. You have to do these things, but it is really open-ended, right? Like you can learn a lot of these skills in operations research and while operations research of like creating road networks, like that kind of like optimization problem may not show up on a day-to-day basis in a standard data science job. You still learn a lot of the skills that are around it. and just the way of thinking about problems that can be transferred really easily.
0: For sure. Well, and, you know, if you think about flow through a network or data pipelines, etc. I mean, there's there's so many overlaps there. I remember my master's, I did a stats class and the professor was very much an operations research guy. And, you know, most of the problems were just like what you were saying, like, you know, cars on a road, but it's it still translated, which is which is great to hear. I think, you know, before we get into the book, I'd love for each of you to take a moment and talk about some of the key inflection points in your career that led up to you writing this book. And Jacqueline, why don't we continue on with you and have you start with that? So some of the key inflection points in your career that kind of led you to this, hey, I need to write a book on this.
3: People look at my career trajectory and they like think it looks pretty good, right? I got to be a director at a company. I got a doctorate. I'm working as an independent consultant and Fortune 500 companies are hiring me. And so I think it's easy to look at my background and be like, wow, there's a lot of successes there. And there's a lot of, like, I was always working towards a goal. But in practice, actually, most of my career has been me, like, having a lot of uncertainty and making, having to make big decisions and not knowing how it's going to go. Like, the decision to not be a math professor. Like, I don't know, maybe, there like, at the time, I didn't know if there were going to be enough math jobs in industry that things would work out. Um, when I finally did decide to go back for a PhD, I didn't know if a PhD would actually be helpful when I got my, my next job, uh, when I went to consulting, I didn't know if that'd be stable enough, or if I'd rather be happy as a working at like a standard uh, industry position. Most of the inflection points have happened because I was in a particular place, and I'd be like, "This doesn't feel like the right place for me. I'm gonna go and try and find some place better." And I feel like I might know what that looks like, but it may turn out that I might like, be wrong, and I'm just gonna have to roll with it. And that continuous like trying to learn feedback loop. Growth that has been where most of my inflection points have been, rather than like I did a hard thing and then I got this accolade and then that accolade got me a new thing. It's like much less of that. First
0: off, thank you for sharing that because you know there's obviously some vulnerability in there too. Because I think you know so often our careers and our lives, we love to project everything is kind of up and to the right. And you know I know in my own career too, like this is something I struggle with. How do you balance out the day to day of you know you need to quote unquote put food on the table? You wanna do things you like, you wanna work with people you like, and sometimes not all of those things align. So then how do you go and change them?
3: Yeah, um, and for me personally, there was a lot of years in my career where I'm like, will I ever find anything that I actually like? And like, mm. I have since found those things. There was a long point where I didn't know if like there was any job I would really be a right fit for me. And especially today with LinkedIn and LinkedIn posts talking about how like, is you're saying up and to the right, it's gotta go. And like it's very easy to get overwhelmed by the idea that if you aren't truly happy in your job right now, in the exact way you expect them, there's some flaw happening, some problem.
0: Yeah, I think that's so true. And you know, especially now that I'm a, a little bit older, I look at it as it ebbs and flows. And you're gonna have moments where you're all in on your career, and there's other times where it's like, hey, you know what? I need to step back and take care of my family, or I need to take care of this thing. Emily, how about you? What have been some of the key inflection points for you? I
2: think the biggest uh, inflection point in my career and like what's made a huge difference is becoming involved in the data science community. So in terms of how actually like I decided to write a book, I'd actually not decided. Uh, so Jacqueline and I met at a conference uh, day-to-day Texas in January 2018, where we were both speaking and saw each other talk. And then she reached out to me a few months later because Manning had contacted her about writing this book. And she said, "You know, hey, are you interested in writing this kind of like career advice book for data scientists, I'd love to have a co-author. Um, and that's not necessarily something I would have thought to do. But as soon as she said it, I'm like, yes, I definitely want to do it. And how I ended up at that conference was I had spoken at a, my first meetup or conference back in July 2017, thanks to Jared Lander, who runs the New York Open Statistical Program meetup. And he and I had met because I had been attending his meetup And so just a really, I've gotten a lot of opportunities. I've made a lot of friends, you know, professional opportunities, other speaking opportunities. I spoke at a conference in the Netherlands and uh, a meetup in London, things that like a few years ago, I wouldn't have thought of doing, but kind of snowballed out of just putting myself out there and starting it. So I think that's Really made a huge difference in my career, partly because of that. Like, why I was interested in writing this book with Jacqueline is because, like, putting myself out there more, I realized, like, well, you know, I've been learning a lot from doing this. Um, I get questions about how I get into data science. And I think Jacqueline and I both wanted to. Uh, maybe debunk some myths like we've been talking about that you need a specific degree or you have to learn this like super long list of algorithms or the only, you know, data science is all about the technical skills. Whereas actually we interview 16 different data scientists in our book at one at the end of each chapter and a key point, a lot of them saying is, yes, you need those foundational technical skills, but you need things like communication skills, you know, working with stakeholders. And of course, you need skills like, um, you know, writing a resume, interviewing well to get the job. And we didn't really see a guide out there for people. It was just sort of disjointed blog posts. And we really wanted to give back and like give people uh, what we had wished we had had.
0: I love that. And I want to dig in on some more on the book, but I want to pick up on something you you said there, Emily, which is you two both met at this conference. And I'm kind of curious, like for both of you, like, you know, that that very first speaking engagement is often kind of the linchpin, if you will, right? I'm curious, like, how did you both approach getting that first speaking gig and kind of getting over your fears, getting ready for it, etc.? And maybe Emily, why don't you start since you brought it up and then Jacqueline, I'd love to hear your side of that as well.
2: Yeah. So I mentioned, so it was Jared Lander. And so I gotten to know him through attending this meetup and, you know, meetup organizers are often like he runs a monthly meetup, like they're like, they need speakers to run this meetup. And so I remember after I got my job at Etsy, like a month or two in, he was like, okay, so when are you speaking? And I was like, Jared, why don't you give me like a couple months? But then like, then let's, let's talk. Yeah. And how I approached it. I mean, I will say like, I've done... A fair amount of extracurriculars in college and student government, so I wasn't—I was fairly comfortable public speaking. You know, I'd done it in grad school, but never in like a technical meetup. So I basically approached it by actually wrote a blog post about giving your first talk. Um, but one of the key points I approached it is like, okay, now that I'm about six months in, like, what do I wish I had known before I had started, or what have I learned? you know, over the past six months. And so when I was working at Etsy, I did a lot on A-B testing. You know, my background organization behavior, I'd done a fair amount of experiments, like academic experiments, but, you know, realized, wow, so I had like a good foundation, but it's so different when you're running like an A-B test, you're running it like online, you're getting visitors constantly. And like Etsy has like millions of, you know, visitors, right? That's so different than a study I might've run, which if it's in person had a hundred people or even online, maybe a you know, a couple hundred. Uh, So I gave my talk called A-B testing in the wild. What are some of the technical challenges and some of the non-technical challenges like communicating and stakeholders you have with that? And it really did snowball from there. So someone at West Point saw my talk, asked me to come up and speak there. When I submitted to um, our studio conference to speak that winter, I was able to share the link of the recording of my talk. And then, you know, people see you at other conferences. They ask you to speak at your conferences. um, and And it really goes from there.
0: Yeah. The, the circuit effect of public speaking is very real. Jacqueline, how about you?
3: I would very explicitly say that last point where it's like speaking of the concept, it's like being a rock band, right? The rock bands, just start out at like the dive bars in your local town and eventually you're playing at like the little city and then you go into like Las Vegas and then you're like in front of a stadium of 50,000 people. It's the same thing with talks. You start at your local meetups. You eventually you go to like some bigger conference, our studio conference, God, eventually you're the keynote. Like that's like, you're like, you made it as a rock band. So like, it's the same idea. For me, I mean, I also had some of that same kind of cyclical things got bigger and bigger. But for my friend, Chester, who I went to grad school with, who was involved in the art community, he kind of got me pulled in a little bit to some of this. So it was nice having some uh, networks, but you definitely don't need that to start. You can get in other ways. And I mean, I would just say for me, like in college, you know, I was doing college theater. I was in the improv team at my college and so there's like giving interesting and informative presentation is a lot like doing theater or stand-up comedy or like improvisation you know where like you have an audience you're trying to rope them in but also keep them engaged with some concept and so I think I fell very naturally into this and I have kind of a big personality so it worked fairly easily (laughs) which is not to say that you need that like I've seen lots of people who do not have that personality and who have still done incredibly well at presenting. But for me, I just, I found my natural cadence very quickly.
0: That's awesome. And, uh, and here I'm picturing you on tour and 50 years doing the same talk, just like the Stones, you know, just for our listeners, you know, there's no sex and drugs and crashing and burning out on the end of these conferences on like the rock tour. So Jacqueline continuing on with you and take a moment and, and tell us about the book. Who's the target audience and and what should somebody expect to learn from this?
3: So yeah, as Emily was saying, um, this book really came from the fact that when you go out and you're all these rock tours or whatever, giving conference talks, you get a lot of people who come up to you and they're like, wow, how can you get where you are, right? Like there's some form of like, I just, I just want what you have. I want to be that person you are. And like, I remember earlier in my career seeing, I remember um, Julia Silgi giving a talk. I'm like, wow, how does she do? I want to be that. You know, like I remember that very much feeling. And then as Emily said, We both independently realized that there's just not a resource we could point people to of, I want to have a career in data science. And so we basically wrote the book with the idea that actually applies for a lot of different points in your data science career. So the start of the book is all for people who like are not data scientists yet and want to understand like what it's about what are the skills you need to get? How do you get those skills? What are the companies like that you would work at if you were a data scientist? So like introduction to people who are not yet even thinking that much about data science. And then we go into like, well, okay, you have some of these skills, you want to get a job, you want to switch from maybe like software engineering to data science. How do you actually get the data science job you want? And then the second half of the book is all, okay, you have a data science job, how do you get good at it? How do you grow? How do you become a manager or like a a lead data scientist? You know, and as Emily points out, like, how do you become part of this community and how do you um, grow that part of your career as well? The book is really targeted for people uh, who are interested in data science, whether they are not yet a data scientist or whether they want to become a stronger data scientist uh, within their career.
0: Oh, I love that so much. And, you know, kind of hits at so many parts of what's going on. Emily, you know, Drilling in on that a little bit, what are some of the key skills that someone needs to get into this field? You know, you mentioned, hey, you don't necessarily have to have the pedigree, you know, the degree and all that kind of stuff. But what are some of the key things that one of our listeners might say, hey, I think this might be for me?
2: So I think there's a couple of things. The first is programming. So we have a little sidebar, which is like, can you be a data scientist without programming? And like, well, the practical answer is like, can you get a job and do the job without it as data scientists is now? And the answer is basically no. But we also do think like programming offers a lot of benefits. So generally the two languages that data scientists use are R uh, and Python. And, you know, programming, doing it in ARM Python versus, say, doing it in Excel or Tableau, um, it offers you a lot of flexibility compared to, say, Excel. You can work with a lot more data, do a lot more complex things. So that that's one of the key skills that you need. The second is, like, data literacy, basically. And so that, that statistics plays a role in that. But understanding, right, okay, what is the difference between the mean, median, and mode? Why might I want to use one of them uh, versus another? Or, okay, if if a person came up to me and said, uh, you know, a stakeholder came up and said like, hey, we want to understand our customers better. Like often they'll come to you with sort of, ill-defined questions, you know, being able to work with them, figure out what they're really asking, and then also translate that into a data science question. So in that case, it might be like, okay, they're asking for groups of users. So um, I need to do a clustering algorithm that will find, you know, sort of latent groups of users among our customers. So I think those are two of the really foundational skills you need. Jacqueline, do you have anything to to add to that list?
3: Yeah. So I would add there's that. And then there's, I think the the implicit stuff I'm talking about, which is like the kind of the like implicit business understanding so i say more than necessarily like a software engineer a data scientist really needs to understand if a business stakeholder is coming up and trying to say i don't understand why our users might be different a data scientist really has to understand like what is a user like what is the context of the company like what is the big picture business picture that i need to understand to really answer this question and that's really important for a data scientist but it's not like you can just pick up a textbook and how your particular company works. Like it's really just being about being thoughtful about how humans and how businesses kind of work and work together.
0: Yeah, I love that. And, and I mean, that's one of the emphasis on this show. Anyways, I've learned I have to stop calling them soft skills. They're interpersonal skills. They're professional skills. Uh, so I, I love that you both highlighted that. So Emily, I think you you hinted at obviously you need programming to be a data scientist, but there are in fact other roles that maybe aren't as programming heavy. Jacqueline, can you kind of talk through what some of those are, things like business analyst and and kind of these different parts to the role?
3: So in our book, we really, we put three core roles under the whole field of data science. And one is the decision scientist. And that's like the person whose job it is to really kind of think of like traditional data science of like, I'm going to take data, I'm going to use it to answer some questions someone in the company has, and I'm going to put it into a PowerPoint and show it to an executive. Like the data is telling us we should do this. A machine learning engineer, which we put it within data science, is like the person who like builds a machine learning model to use data to make decisions like in real time for each customer so like make a recommendation engine that like gives recommendations uh, on the website for different products and then lastly is the analyst position and the analyst position like if you're an analyst it's your job to really take data within the company and put it into a format and place that people can like really quickly use it within the company so like maybe an analyst will make a monthly sales report to try and take all of the sales number over the last month, get it in a nice, easy format so that a business executive can make a decision on it. And so those kind of that last role tends to have less programming than necessarily the other two, but it's very important to keeping companies running. And yeah, like on any a headcount basis, there are probably far more of those jobs. Maybe it's not always given the most attention, but it is one of the most important parts of uh, data science.
0: That's awesome. Thanks for that. Emily, kind of continuing on with her theme and we're growing as a data scientist. I've got my first gig. What advice would you give me as somebody who wants to grow in this field? How do I, how do I get to that next level as a data scientist?
2: Yeah, so we've already talked about the uh, community aspect of it because I really do think it's a great way to learn is by being a part of the community and contributing to it, whether that's by doing talks or writing blog posts. Jacqueline and I are both fairly active on Twitter and Twitter is a very great, especially in the art community. That's how I generally keep up to date of like, oh, what are the, you know, cool packages that people are talking about now, or, oh, hey, uh, dplyr, you know, an R package had a new release, and there are these cool new functions in it, and look, I can read about it on this blog post. So I think that's one way to really keep growing your skills, even if maybe at your company, you're one of the only data scientists, and so there's there's less peer-to-peer learning there. Uh, So that's one way. And then I think another one is to you know, make sure that like, so we talk about in our chapter on, you know, deciding to leave a company, leaving gracefully of really trying to, you know, always be continuing to learn because data science is a field that is constantly, you know, growing and, and changing with new technologies or new techniques. I certainly don't mean by this, that you need to know everything because no one knows everything, but just that you want to, you know, keep, whether it's like learning, uh, becoming better at you know managing uh, meetings, if you want to say like become a, a manager or like maybe you know do more of that, or it's you know learning more programming techniques in Python because you're finding like maybe you're not being as efficient there as you'd want, or learning more about databases is just you know trying to make sure to push yourself a little bit sometimes out of your comfort zone and you know see where there might be opportunities uh, whether in your company or outside of it to, to gain some new skills.
0: I love that. It's such good advice in there. Moving along, I think, you know, one of the things I was really happy to see in the book is you've got this whole chapter and you hinted at this earlier, uh, one of you did on how to handle failures. And, you know, in episode 51, I had Josh Wills on, who's a data scientist as well. And he talks a fair in that episode, about how you know, let's face it, most experiments in data science fail, or they're a flat at least at best. But we didn't really get in so much on how to deal with them. And Jacqueline, I wonder if you could spend a moment reflecting on this notion of failure handling as a data scientist.
3: Oh, I sure will. So I was the one who wrote that chapter, and this is a really uh, like a passionate topic for me. And the reason why is I so I've been doing data science for a long time, and easily for the first five years of my career, I would have this like crippling stress because I would try, like I'd have an idea for a new data science project. I would get people excited about it in the company and then I would try it and it wouldn't really work. And sometimes it wouldn't work because the data didn't actually have the signal I would need to make the prediction I wanted. And sometimes the model I created would be great, but the business didn't have an actually good use for it or even the UI was, wasn't sufficiently good so that the model, no one ended up using it because of things outside the data model itself. And I really beat myself up over this. I was like, well, if I was a better data scientist, these things wouldn't have happened. And now as I've matured and grown as a data scientist, I've started to fight back that kind of self-harming thoughts of like, oh, I am bad at my job because I failed at these things. But it really took a long time and it really had to make, I had to really just get comfortable with the idea that actually to be a good data scientist, you have to be failing all the time because, you know, it's just, as you're saying, these are all experiments. And so you have to be taking risks. If you only run experiments that are going to, you know, are going to pass in advance, your experiments are very experimental. I actually now go around the country giving a talk, which is like, I just walk through like five of the biggest failures in my career and how they happened and what I learned from them. And I think that, I've gotten a lot of positive feedback from data scientists being like, oh, thank God, it's not just me. So I really, that's why I really insisted we include a chapter on this in the book because it's just... It's something I think more people should talk about.
0: Yeah, for sure. I, you know, Ronnie Kohavni, who who I think is now at Airbnb, but ran uh, Microsoft, their AB experimentation platform. He has really good talk on this. I'm curious to pull on one little thread there. Give us one, one quick example of, of one of these failures that's in this talk that you, you have.
3: I was consulting for um, retail companies. You know, if you're like a shoe store or like a handbag store or something like that. And a lot of these companies try and design, you know, they try and do like sales, like I'm going to have like a big sales campaign, but we're going to give all these different discounts, these kinds of things. And the company needs to understand how much money are they going to make by giving out those coupons and things like that. And so traditionally what you would do, if you were trying to understand how well a sale was going to be before you, how much money you get before you do the sale, you would make a spreadsheet. And in that spreadsheet, you'd be like, we think we're going to give out 10,000 coupons, Half of them are gonna be used. Each time someone walks in the store, they're gonna buy 20 extra dollars worth of stuff. And that's our return on investment, our ROI. I, as a data scientist, was like doing high level calculations in Excel, that is like a bad idea. What we really should be doing is using machine learning and actually taking customer data and trying to understand, well, what types of customers will use the coupons and let's like run some simulations and say like, well, if they bought the coupon, that would cause them to come into a store six months earlier, which will cause this amount of increase in revenue. So, anyways, I built this big simulation framework. I felt really positive about it. I was really happy with the results. So, I ended up using that tool at a number of different retail companies um, who got really excited about the product and really excited about this model. But then at the end of the day, after the model would make the prediction, I'm like, well, here's how much your sale is going to bring in. But what would inevitably happen is People at the company would be like, well, we don't understand it because you did this calculation in a black box of simulation. What we really want is an Excel spreadsheet with just some simple numbers that we can look at the mathematics of and hand off to our finance team. Yeah. So basically what they wanted was the original product. And what the failure was here was not that the machine learning model was bad. You know, it had its but It was generally fine. The problem was I incorrectly thought that the goal was to maximize the accuracy of the prediction, and it was not. The goal was to keep finance from blocking the sale and just to get them to think it, it won't bankrupt the company. And so that failure of understanding who the real customer was and what the real goal of the product was, that caused my cool pet project to fail in a way that really was sad, but taught me a lot about how retail worked.
0: Mm, I love it. And product market fit at the end of the day is still the thing that matters, right?
3: Right, yeah, and I mean, I thought about like I felt really bad. I was like, oh, hey, um, this didn't really work out. But I'm like, but Google Glass didn't work out, and that was probably like tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars. Like, I'm doing fine. Emily, what about you? How do you think
0: about this? Uh, you know, especially I think you mentioned earlier you you spent a lot of time working on A/B testing and kind of experimentation. How How's your approach been to this?
2: as Jacqueline mentioned, she was a primary author chapter, but of course we always reviewed each other's. And one thing I was like, Jacqueline, you know, you sort of say like, oh, it's inevitable to fail as a data scientist. But I was like, I actually think you could avoid failure as a data scientist, not because you're so awesome, but because you're not taking risks, right? You could find the things that are just like the non-risky projects that don't stretch your skills or that like, you know, maybe more like analytics projects also are they can fail when you not find the data, but it's kind of less likely. Um, you know, for example, if you're like, make a sales dashboard and you know you have the sales data, it's like, okay, eventually I can make a dashboard. So my approach actually was reflecting some and I was like, you know, I don't, think I really failed enough. And it's not because I'm like, so awesome and great. It's because I haven't been pushing myself and like taking on riskier things. So like, yeah, a lot of our AB tests failed, but I think that felt different to me than like, I tried to do this data science project or like do this model and it wasn't adopted or, you know, like it didn't have good enough predictions. So it was actually a good impetus for me to really think about, you know, the value of taking the risk and like, that's how you're going to grow and and get new skills and, uh, you know, and do better next time.
0: My friend, uh, Ted Dunning, who, who maybe you two know, has this saying where he says, the beauty of all of this, of this data science thing, at the end of the day, is you get to be wrong. But it's okay because what you've really done that's right is you've built a framework that allows you to be wrong and then adjust and adapt and experiment and kind of incrementally move on. And that, to me, is one of the true powers of being a data scientist. I don't have to be right right now. But eventually, over the long run, we're going to be right.
3: Yeah. And I would say um, that's one of the biggest differences I see when I talk to software engineers, because you really don't have that concept in the same way of like, oh, it just might all not work out and that's fine. Yeah. Getting them to adjust their expectations on what data science work is like, like that is by far the biggest area. that concept of like, yeah, it might not work out, but in the long run, these will all eventually, eventually we'll find something that
0: works. Well, and I, and I think this is in many ways, the future of software engineering as well, as I tell people all the time, you know, like you got to get used to all programs being probabilistic, right? You can't just think about Data is being sorted by date, et cetera, right? There's always going to be this importance function overlaid on everything. And the next generation of developers are going to be these data science natives. They're they're always going to have a function that says, here's how important this thing is. Please score this for me. And, And you have to build the whole application with that in mind.
3: This is just kind of my philosophy of data science and machine learning is that I think that machine learning is really good at getting you a couple percentage points better. Right. If you're Google and you want your results to be like a couple percentage points better, better machine learning can really do that. If you're like a small startup and you have an app, if you only have 10 products showing using machine learning to get those 10 products in the optimal order, it's not going to like make that much of a difference. So I think machine learning, data science, these things are really cool and can be helpful. But I think you need to understand, like, is this a place you want to spend a lot of time and money to get a couple percentage points better? Or can you just show the most popular products first and call that a day? probably work fine and move on. And so I think a lot of people are just now starting to get their like understanding of when's the right time to do that. So I think just over time, it's not that like data science and machine learning, not like every single part of every UI is going to have like an optimized algorithm. I think people are just going to get smarter of like, okay, now this is the important enough place that we really want to, like put in the extra percentage.
0: I love that and, and thank you for teasing that out because I, you know, in my, in my mind like this, it's this notion that we are going to have a learning component built into our applications, at least, you know, for bigger companies that is, you know, designed such that this application is meant to be more fluid and not so rigid about, you must do this thing in exactly this way.
3: Yeah, and I would just say that's also true on the more decision science kind of like part of data science of like making executives make decisions where like some companies are really hampered because every decision has to have some data scientist go and spend a week looking at the data to try and say whether or not they should make that decision, when the company would be a lot better if they're like, well, that obviously sounds like a good idea, so we'll just do it. And so just like knowing in software, where do you want to optimize the data? I think knowing in a business, where do you want to optimize the data? And where do you just want to let smart people be smart and let the data not be a blocker? I think that's something we're going to get better at over time.
0: I love that. Shifting gears here a little bit and as, as we kind of head into the home stretch, you know, Emily at at the meta level, you know, I personally know writing a book is not an easy thing. And I'm curious for both of you, but starting with Emily, you know, what's been your approach? Especially, you know, like you both are working full time, you know, you've got a, a life, you know, you've got to carve out this time for writing a book. You gotta figure out who's writing what, when and where and how. What's that been like for you, Emily, to to be a first time author of a of a technical book?
2: So one fun thing Jacqueline and I did at the end was we wrote each other's like longer about the authors uh, that's inside the book. I was so glad to have a co-author, but also a co-author like Jacqueline and and that it just really made the book writing, I think, much better because what helped me with writing it was one, I think we set out, and this is helped by um, so to start writing the book, we had to send a proposal to Manning, uh, which included, among other things, an outline of the book. It's not like that we were married to that outline and we actually ended up adding another chapter, but it helped to plan out and like really talk about and think about okay, what do we want included? And in this chapter on negotiations, like what might be some of the subtopics. We each independently did on a one to five scale how much we we wanted or felt comfortable writing each chapter and then from that we were you know there were some that Jacqueline really wanted to write that I didn't want to write or vice versa so from that we split it up uh, so we each got eight chapters and then the process was uh, Jacqueline actually wrote a blog post about this which you can talk about analyzing our github commits because we were writing in word but committing it to github but yeah we took it basically one chapter at a time so we would write the first draft of the chapter um, we would send it to the other person. They'd mark it up with track changes, send it back. You know, we'd integrate those, maybe come back with questions. Um, and I thought that worked pretty well to keep it feeling very manageable rather than like, like always thinking about like, oh my God, you know, we have 16 chapters to write how, you know, that's going to take forever. It's like really chunking it up into the chapters. And the final thing I think that helped was we had a weekly book call, which I think was kind of one. It was it was really fun since we're in di- different cities to get to know each other a little bit more. At least for me it helped uh, make me feel a little more accountable. You know we'd make a plan each week for like what we were going to try to get done.
0: I love that. Jacqueline, what's your best writing tip?
3: And first off, I'll say it's been really great working with Emily, but it's also great because we both consistently did our work. Like neither of us fell too far behind at any given week. And I think having someone else who is being consistent makes you be more consistent. So like, it was nice to kind of have that feedback loop. I mean, if you are just about to start a book, what I did was I really talked to a bunch of people who had written books or like I would talk to like, Oh, I've just started writing a book and they'd already written. And the feedback you always get is like, wow, it is a lot of work. Get ready. And you're like, uh, uh-uh, a lot of work. And you like, you've written a book, you know, it's a lot of work. So you hear that a lot and you're like, Oh my God, Oh my God, this is going to be the worst. And then you like, you start getting, you're like maybe two or three months in and you're like, ah, this is not so bad. You know, you go to a coffee shop, like two or three nights a week work for a couple hours, like you're getting through it. And then by like month eight, you're like, oh my God, I've been doing this for so long and I still have like four more months. And like, that's the hard part is like, it's not that any given week is that difficult. It's just, it is a year long process. It's not a sprint, it's a marathon. You just have to keep going with it. Yeah, and so the stuff that Emily and I are talking about, about having a co-author who's really consistent and you trust their style and you can see that, but that that keeps that marathon running. And um, so yeah, Emily is saying this. I wrote a blog post right actually, um, looked at all the commits and like how many words we wrote in that commit and who wrote that commit to see how our book progressed over time. And it was remarkably consistent where like each week we just wrote a certain number of words and we kept that same pace the entire course of the book. And I don't think it would have worked as well if we had like a five month gap in there, or we wrote three chapters in the course of two weeks. Like just having that consistency um, really, I think, got us through the, the long slog.
0: Yeah, that's so true. It's that kind of Stephen King on writing. He's like, you know what? You just got to show up and write every single day. Uh, I love that. And and just for our listeners too, the, the other thing they're not telling you is like, you feel like you're done, right? You, you've gotten all the things you want to say out and, and then comes the editing process and the publishing process and the formatting process. And I don't know about YouTube, but by the time we were done with that, it was like, I don't ever want to look at this thing again. And then you get a copy of it and you're like, oh, I
3: love it. So for us, it was not just the editing, but really before that, we had a whole appendix of interview questions, which actually were really fun to write. But like we were like, oh, even more work and like compiling all the resources of like, here, check out these other books. You want to learn more about this topic? And then the actual editing, like going through the edits wasn't that hard. The hardest part was literally just writing the words you wrote again the entire way through the book. So you've edited all the pages of the book. It was like, wow, like I have seen these sentences a thousand times. Um and they're good sentences. Please buy our book.
2: Yeah. I will say what helped throughout sort of like Jacqueline put it like very nice, you know, like each other and like you know accountable. I would say like it was this was really helped. I'm a very guilt-driven person. And so like I would see like Jacqueline committing I'd be like, all right, I better write. Whereas I think if it had just been because I mean, you talk to people who publish books and like the publishers give you deadlines, but I don't know, those are pretty fungible. The editors too, like as long as you're like making some progress, they're not like, oh my God, we're going to, you know, immediately fire you because you haven't met this deadline. So I don't think it would have worked as well if I had just been on my own, but like seeing Jacqueline being like, all right, Jacqueline's like getting this chapter done. And I'm like trying to like keep pace. She's, you know, writing her third chapter. I got to write my third chapter. Uh, So that worked really well for me.
0: For our listeners, when she says fungible, she is not lying. I literally took five years from start to finish. But I, w- I will say there is some caveats there. I think, you know, Manning and O'Reilly, the big publishers, it depends on the subject. So if this is a very topical as in now book versus I think like yours and mine are more like big picture across time views, there's there's perhaps a little more leeway there. Coming back and kind of heading into the final few questions here for each of you, and we'll start with you, Emily. What's been the most surprising thing for you in your career?
2: What's been surprising sometimes is like talking to other people like through the community um, and like their experience in data science, kind of how similar it is to mine, but how different that feels and like what's being posted about on, on Reddit or like sometimes you see in these articles, but I talked to other people like studies so or, you know, occasionally you'll see tweets like this. So it's like, I was sort of laughing, right. You know, like, Oh, oh I'm like, uh, I saw a tweet the other day that someone was like, you know, a stakeholder like asks you like, hey, can you pull this data for me? And it's like me, yeah, sure. Just select star from some ideal table, you know, that you think exists. So <laughs> an ideal of pristine table. So it's like talking to other people. It's like, wow, yeah, a lot of us are dealing with the same problems of like, it's like, why doesn't the data exist or it exists in a really weird way? Uh, you know, it's like spending time in meetings, like spending you do programming stuff. But then like I, sometimes I go to like data science, Reddit and I get like huge imposter syndrome because I'm like, oh my God, all these people are like talking about these, like, you know, optimizing these, like super complicated algorithms. Them. So they're asking some, you know, statistics question that I don't know the answer to. So I think that to me has kind of been a bit surprising. You know, you need those technical foundational skills, but like how much more there is to it and also how much the commonalities that you can have across uh, companies as well. Because I think sometimes people think like, oh, people at Google, like their data is like all like clean and perfect. And it's like, no, actually, like they, they deal with a lot of the problems that you have at a startup. So that's been really interesting to, to learn more about.
0: Jacqueline, how about you? What's been the most surprising thing for you in your career?
2: I
3: think the thing that has been most surprising is just how big of a difference there is between what I thought would make a good data scientist at a company versus what has made me successful as a data scientist, which is to say, when I finished my master's and I first went into industry, I had this kind of expectation that To be good at your job you're going to be given a task to do and you do that task and then like then you are good right like it's like you're working at a factory you need to make this widget you make the widget you are good at it and i really that's how i kind of approach data you know what i expected people would want from me as a data scientist they would give me some data and ask me to answer a question i would just answer that question if i'd done that quickly and effectively over and over then i'd be good at it and i don't think that's true at all at least what's made me really what was made my career feel like it's been successful is that it's much more of like a literally you are in a apple grove of low hanging fruit. Like there are so many things of the company that could be improved, so many things that could be made better. And like it's nighttime or something. Like and, like and no one knows what's going on. So you just go around, find some low hanging fruit, grab it, and then share it with others. Like that's immensely successful. You know, like the first month of my first job, I'm like, hey, uh, an executive asked me to fill some data. I'm like, hey, instead of doing that, we could have a whole product that does like that solve this problem ten times better. Why don't we just do that? And then I just built a prototype and that got me a huge success in that first company. And just this continuous, hey, I noticed something that could be done better. I'm gonna try doing it better. We're gonna see if it works. Sometimes, as I mentioned with that simulator for retail companies, like doesn't always work, but just having that nature of, I'm gonna to continue to learn. I'm gonna to continue to try stuff. We're gonna explore. We're gonna see what we can do better. That's what really makes the, the most successful data scientist, which is like the opposite of how they kind of suggest you should act as an employee at a company.
0: I love that. That's so cool. Thanks for sharing that, Jacqueline. For each of you, real quick, spend a few sentences on a mentor that you've had, an important relationship or a friend perhaps that has kind of helped you figure out your career. And Emily, why don't we start with you?
2: So another thing I wrote a post on, um, which is called the importance of sponsorship, because uh, just a very quick overview. So your listeners might know heard of sponsorship versus say mentorships so like mentorship, right? Is like most people know what a mentor is. You give advice, but sponsorship is about giving opportunities. Uh, so whether raising someone's name in a meeting, uh, like at the workplace to say like, Hey, I think, you know, you should consider them to do this project or, you know, like Jared Lander for me uh, asking me to speak at an R meetup or people giving funding. Uh, so I would say the biggest, Like mentor slash sponsor for me has actually been my brother Dave, who is now a principal data scientist at a company called Heap. Because he's always been brilliant data scientist. He also like does a lot of public work. He's written books and given keynotes. Like on Twitter, he does these YouTube live streams. But we also got the chance to work together at my last company, uh, where he was a chief data scientist. And it was just always so encouraging to me. You know, he's someone that. A very important concept is called psychological safety, where you feel like, you know, you can admit you don't know things, you can make mistakes, and they won't think less of you or make fun of you or whatnot. Uh, or siblings, like I, I definitely have that with him. And so I think that's made, you know, a big difference in my career is like, there's a few opportunities that he encouraged me to do. But but yeah, it's been more encouragement. It's been more like, hey, I think you should do this. I believe that you can do this. And sort of helping me like pick myself back up when I am dealing with uh, imposter syndrome or, or having failed at something.
0: An older brother relationship that has psychological safety—that's uh, that's fantastic. He's not just giving you noogies uh, any time, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure I would have maybe said that like back when we were growing up, but certainly now we, we've evolved to to that point.
0: That's fantastic. I love it. It sounds like a truly special relationship where you can have both a, a family relationship and a, a, a work relationship. So that, that that sounds
3: amazing. Jacqueline, how about you? I had a boss several jobs ago named George. Uh, He's probably not listening well, so maybe. I thought he was just a really good leader. And it was great because he would like mentor me if I asked him questions about, at that point I was leading a team and like I'd ask him questions like, well, how do you handle this? Like he would, I think give very thoughtful answers, but he was just really good in like, in a room like this is at a consulting company so we'd be in a room with like CEO of the like 15 billion dollar bank and he'd be able to like in that room be like cool as a cucumber and just like totally sound serious and professional if you ask me a question at that point and I think it's still kind of true I'd be like Jacqueline what's the best type of neural network for a text classification I'd be like it's a convolutional neural network okay like, just in, real fascinating and George I'll do I'll do a question how George would answer that and like you'd be like George what's the best neural network to use and he'd be like the thing I found is, right, so we have this like pause in there and the pause is him thinking and I'm like, wait, you're allowed to think before you answer? It, now that you've given much better answers, it allowed everyone to understand, hey, he's thinking about this. And so that made me realize that like, hey, I can really have a meta analysis of how I actually interact when I'm in a room of people and I need to try and convey some important information. And that's really helped me immensely, just that sort of idea of like, hey, let's not just have a conversation, but let's like really be thoughtful about how we're going to treat ourselves and the people around us when we have that conversation. Not in like an intimidating way, like you is not intimidating. It's just like a very like calm, thoughtful, hey, let's do our due diligence here.
0: That's fantastic. And such a novel idea that you can be in a meeting and Think or even say, Hey, I don't know. Let me get back to you. (laughs) Crazy ideas, (laughs) Emily and Jacqueline. You know, so awesome to have you on the show. I love the idea of this book, it fits so much with what this theme of this show is. Let's wrap it up with one final question for each of you, and it's really difficult, which is, Where can our listeners? follow and learn from you, where can they buy your book, where can they figure out how to build a career as a data scientist? Emily, you first.
2: Yeah, so there's a couple places. My blog, which I mentioned a few times, is hookedondata.org. So you can find, I have a couple career related posts there. I'm also on Twitter at Robinson underscore yes. And as for the book, we'll eventually be on Amazon. There's some like supply chain issues with COVID, but you can always get it on Manning. And this was fun. So there's a long manning URL, but to make that more efficient, uh, Jacqueline and I made some short URLs and mine is datascicareer.com. And then you can hear uh, Jacqueline's in a moment.
3: You can find me on Twitter at Sky Tetra. That's S-K-Y-E-T-E-T-R-A, Sky Tetra. You can find me at my personal website, which is J-N-O-L-I-S.com. Um, and yeah, so Emily, has got the really serious professional URL for our book, or you can use my URL for the book, which is bestbook.cool. You'll get a, a link to our, it'll take you to the
2: Manning page for our book. And we have stickers that say that. We have bestbook.cool stickers, which we gave out at our studio conference and at other meetups.
0: Nice. Well, we can run a, a real A-B test here and see who gets, have, have you done the analysis to see which
3: URL performs better? Which so I don't know if we show up in the data, but it's also hard because I think we probably give out bestbook.cool about like four times more frequently than we do the other one. Emily tweets com. I quote retweet bestbook.cool.
0: I love it. And then of course for our listeners here as we... Wrap up as I said at the beginning of the show. If you would like a copy of this book, we have an opportunity for you to win one. All you have to do is email datascience at developmentor.com, and the first five people to do that will receive a code that's good for one free ebook. And of course, you can use the developmentor Manning discount code that's poddevmen20. Uh, Don't ask me as to why it's that, but You can use that if you would like, or you can go to bestbook.cool or datasciencecareer.com. Emily and Jacqueline, thank you so much for joining me today. It was awesome to have you both on.
1: Thank you
2: so much for having us.
1: Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Developmentor podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Even better, please leave us a review. If you want to hear older episodes, leave feedback, or sign up to be a guest, please visit us at developmentor.com. If you'd like to support the show, there are three ways you can help out. One, make a donation via Patreon. Two, if you're a software engineer looking for your next gig and wanting to practice interviewing, use our referral link to the interviewing.io platform. And three, buy your next tech book from Manning Publications using our affiliate link. All of those links can be found at developmentor.com support dash us. That's S-U-P-P-O-R-T-U-S, U-S. All one word. Most importantly, if you like this show, please tell your friends. Referrals are the lifeblood of any podcast. Finally, we here at Developmentor hope that each and every episode helps you move one step closer to finding your path.